and welcome to the Wonder Women podcast with me, Rhea Hebden. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Angela Ferreira, who's an internationally recognized, award-winning television producer with over 20 years experience working across scripted, entertainment, daytime, children's and music television. Angela's currently the managing director of Douglas Road Productions, which is a talent-led production company that Lenny Henry founded back in 2014. And prior to that, Angela has held senior roles at Channel 4 as the commissioning editor of Daytime and as an executive producer at BBC Television. She also sits on the TV advisory board at the National Film and Television School. She's a governor at the Brit School and the chair of the Royal Television Society's Diversity Committee. She's one busy lady. Angela, welcome to the Wonder Women podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ria. Oh, it's a pleasure to finally get to talk to you for this. Do you know, I was doing the maths earlier, and I don't know if you know this, but we've actually known each other for 17 years. How can that be when I'm only 22? (laughs) (laughs) I'm at nursery school. I know, 17 years. I I can't believe it. I remember I was your assistant on location for Big Brother's Little Brother. Do you remember? Up in Elstree. I do remember. I remember when you came for your interview as well. I remember thinking about it, yeah. So we had good times up there. It was hard work, long hours. It was, was, but an amazing and exciting time in telly because obviously it was kind of like the start of reality TV and it was brilliant to be on location and just learning and absorbing from you and just watching how this amazing live mammoth of a show is put together. I mean, it really was a special time. And I remember actually you were one of only two women of colour who were really making moves in the industry at that time. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say you were you are one of the original trailblazers in telly. Um, there are women who came before me, um, you know, over the years. You know, Una Marson, who was mm-hmm. somebody who came to the BBC a very long time ago in the 30s and 40s. And so she was a very pioneering woman. Um, and lots of people don't know who she is, but she's got an amazing story. And obviously there were people like Floella Benjamin and Moira Stewart, etc. And in the state, Diane Carroll. So there were some bla- some trailblazing people. And also at the BBC, there were there were there were women there as well. Um, mainly working in radio, I would say, at the mm. BBC. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's not an easy road or an easy path. Put it that way. It hasn't been, and yeah. it still isn't. Well, this is it, because, you know, as a a black female brummie working in a very kind of middle class, white male dominated industry. I mean, tell me what were some of the challenges that you experienced initially and and then as you kind of continue to climb the ladder later on in your career? Well, do you know what I would say that I didn't really have that initially because I was really working in areas that were extensions of all the things that I like to do. So really, television was part of an extension of all my hobbies. I love music. I love the theatre. I love TV. I like books, read a lot, wrote a lot, etc. So I, I was lucky enough to always be in jobs where that was part of just essentially my life, my interests. And if you do something that's interesting, it's actually much, much easier to get the job done. And it doesn't seem so much like hard work. I worked across um, daytime originally on a show about television and then moving to BBC Entertainment and then to Children's, where I worked on a wide variety of things. Truthfully, I think I was probably pretty lucky. There were those what we call now microaggressions that did exist. We didn't have that name for it then. But, you know, one just pressed on and 
you know, the job that I had to be doing, had that in mind and just focused on that. Of course, quite early on at the BBC, I was one of the co-founders of the BBC Black Workers Group, kind of pressure group uh, internally. And I've been involved with the Black Journalists Association externally, but then we sort of absorbed both groups into one. And so that was a start, I suppose, of that kind of, let's call it activism. I suppose that's really what it is. I mean, I'll help to set up the very, very first work experience, the proper scheme at the BBC with local with the local school from Hammersmith. So, um, so I've been involved in setting that up uh, because previous to that, the work experience was pretty ad hoc and, you know, obviously somebody's in their future, blah, blah, blah. This yeah. is the first time that external um, kids had come in on in a very focused way. So I was involved in doing that. That was a very, very long time ago. And then after that, the BBC set up um, other, other programmes in order to bring people in. So, yeah, I was involved in all of that very early on. To help bring different people in from other walks of life who weren't necessarily coming up into television through the university route or through friends of people who already worked in the industry. Do you know what? I actually think at that time, it was, it may, oh, do you know what? It's just so hard to know in retrospect. I mean, I didn't know anybody in TV. I was interested in working in television. I saw an advert for a job. I applied for it. I got the job. I think in lots of ways, it got a lot harder um, mm -hmm. because the, the industry has become a lot more casualized in how they employ people. So for my very first BBC interview, it was uh, two people, because it was a very sort of long and laborious process in those days. There was two people on the board, that's what we called it, the board. Um, and then for the second one, there were actually five people and I was going to be a researcher. So it was, yeah, five or six people. So there was an independent observer and there were all these other people. So it was very, it was um, in lots of ways, it was a fairer system because there were more people assessing what you were doing rather than one person who might know, you might not know, you just talked to you whether you had on the right trainers or whatever, or spoke properly, or how you sat down without looking at the whole picture. So yeah, it was interesting that to go back to the first part of your question, the barriers, because I was working in entertainment and that was what I liked to be in. So, but of course I looked around, I wasn't, I was fully aware that I was the only one. Yeah. You know, it wasn't as though I was, I was, uh, I was immune to that. I was fully aware that I was the only one that uh, other people weren't joining or if they did join, they joined in other capacities. And so in lots of ways, even then, it's very, very similar to now, where when you look across an organisation, it might be that you'll find Black and Asian men, as an example, in IT or accounts or something like that, but not in programme making. So I'm not saying anything that anybody who walks into any broadcasting office can't see with their own two eyes. Mm. And statistically, that's also backed up. So that's just one example. So it was like that then and it's like that now. Is, is that disappointing for you, just kind of, you know, having lived the life that you've lived and, and done a lot of the work on, on the diversity front to see that 20 years on, that things are still pretty much the same? Of course, hugely disappointing, hugely mm. disappointing that we haven't had um, a shift in telling uh, stories from different perspectives, having different opinions in the room, etc. Especially mm. when you look at the big cities uh, like London, um, and who's employed across the board, of course, hugely disappointed because it's not representative. It might be representative sort of partly across the country, but certainly not in the big city. Mm. 
Um, and what do you think like needs to be done then? Because you've got, you know, across some of the broadcasters, you've got those kind of drives to diversify commissioners at that level. But do you, do you think the issue lies in the more senior level? Because when you look at the boards, they're not very diverse, are they? I think Channel 4's got the most diverse board out of the industry. I think that there has been too much of a focus on entry-level schemes mm. and not developing that talent that comes through from that. Yeah. Because then it's, a, oh, let's do a scheme and then the scheme finishes and then they wait a year and then there's another scheme of exactly the same level. Mm. And so the mid-level development is where we need to put a much bigger focus on. Mm. And since um, the sad death of George Floyd last year and the BLM movement, there's been a lot of, I mean, I think scrabbling around to get senior people that when, when they haven't been sort of brought up and trained up during the course of a career. Mm. So you can't have suddenly have people at very senior levels when you haven't done the work in order to um, make sure they've got the same experience as their white peers mm. through the last 10 years or whatever it is. So there's a mismatch. So it's how do we fix that mismatch? And it can't, it's not something that can be fixed overnight. Mm. So it takes investment, it takes commitment, it takes people actually wanting to do all of this and not for it just to be lip service. That's what we need to assess where we are. You know, we're nearly a year on from people making, not only in television, across all industries, very big statements. So let's see how that is going a year on and then let's see where we are next year. I mean, I'm thrilled to have you as a mentor on the Wonder Women Mentoring Programme because that, for me, is something that I created directly to support women at mid-senior level because we know, like you said, that we've got a diversity problem. And so for me, it was, okay, how do we intervene and really help elevate a talented bunch of diverse women from across the country to equip them with uh, a mentor, with structured year-long mentoring and masterclasses that help, you know, give them the confidence to just go for these senior roles. And I I love that you're part of that. I mean, how important from your point of view do you think it is to have a mentor when you're at your kind of midpoint in your career? You know, I've never had a mentor like that. I've had a sort of a few informal things of people that I can go to and talk about, you know, like if I've been offered a job or something like that. But I think the structured mentoring is good. I mean, certainly in the masterclasses that, that Wonder Women have had, I've, you know, I've, I've chipped into a few of them because I wanted to learn something myself because you can never, you know, it's always good to hear other people, the perspectives and listen to what people are saying and what their perspective is. And, and you can always be learning. There's nothing, you know, that is always a good thing. Mm. Um, but I do think that structured mentoring is good. And interestingly, somebody that I was a mentor to when the mentoring thing first started at the BBC, actually, mm. um, and she was still in school. So she has gone on to have a very, very big career. So quite often, I don't, I don't actually call it reverse mentoring or anything like that, but I will say would she look at my bio, will she block? So she, so we do that actually. So it's kind of reverse mentoring because I certainly was a very much a mentor in the beginning um, and still sort of am, I suppose. And she does the same for me simply because of the way her career and knowledge and all of that has taken off and she's a very bright woman. But certainly just to reiterate on your point, I think that things like, you know, it's, it's good to have somebody quite dispassionate to talk to who's not connected with you personally. Yeah. objective and then you don't think well that's my friend who's saying that thing about me and they're making a completely clean assessment of whatever it is um just based on their experience and I think that that is really really useful to have 
And I love the fact that you've invested in that person when they were younger coming up and it's almost gone full circle because now they're helping support you. Yes, yes, absolutely. Plus she went to live abroad. So I've had some very fabulous holidays. And some <laughs> Always helps. So, yes. Well, just the same as you, Ria, because you've taken me out to some nice things that you've been invited to. And that's yeah. part of our kind of mentoring relationship that we've had over the years. So, yeah. you know, that, that's an unexpected bonus. Yeah, it's it's funny, actually, because um, the other day, somebody who I interviewed to be my intern when I worked at Disney booked me to do some work. And I thought, isn't that funny how like I helped and invested in them when they were first starting out? And now they're really successful and senior in their job and they're getting me paid work. I mean, it's just amazing how it works. It's, there's definitely something in that good karma in yes. giving back and paying it forward. Definitely. Yeah, Yeah, 100%. Now, Angela, working in television, as you know, we get to work with some of the best creative talent in the world. Can you tell me what you love most about working in the industry? There's lots of things that I like. I like when we're actually in production yeah, and the show is being made and you're on location or you're in the studio or whatever. I love being in the studio. I love seeing that live countdown clock going, um, even though I still get that flutter of Oh, you know, we've, we're coming down to it and you hear the 10, 9, 8, etc. <laughs> we're on air or whatever it is. I still like editing. I still like being in the cutting room. And I like working, you know, I like discussing ideas and being around creative people. So I do like all of those things. So the sort of the ground level programme making, I still love. Uh, obviously, as you go up the ladder, there's sometimes a bit less of that and much more of the management stuff and the and the commission. Because obviously, I've been the commissioner as well at Channel Four, mm-hmm. um, and when I was an exec at the BBC, there was a little bit of this as well, where you're you know you're talking to other program makers who want to give you their ideas, etc. Obviously, as a commissioner, that's what you do, and as an exec at the BBC, I also did some of that. So yeah, it's just just keep in sight of actually these are the really nice bits that I like, and so that they don't go too far away. So I'm just not you know, just not in management speak the whole time. And what skills do you think you kind of need to get ahead at, to be quite senior in the industry? Because you absolutely have to be a people person, don't you? And I, th- I think you're a brilliant mediator. Thank you for that, Ria. Um, I think that I am a good leader and I think I'm a good listener. I never thought about getting to the top or anything like that. That hasn't been what my focus has been. Apart from when self-shooting was brought in, Mm-hmm. and I just thought oh my god self-shooting I don't think I want to do that I don't know if I'm going to know how to do it so where's that career ladder let me just jump on it and scrub up a few steps <laughs> <laughs> so yes yeah, so I don't think I've never really thought about oh I'm going to be seen I, I've never done that especially when I left the BBC you know my mantra then was work with the right people on the right jobs for the right money mm-hmm. and so now I don't think in terms of career I think am I doing what I like Right. Am I doing what I like with nice people? Mm. And if I'm not doing what I like with nice people, then I won't be doing it because I don't need to think about a career. I'm, I'm sort of past that because I'm not, you know, just starting out or anything like that. Mm. And truthfully, I never did. So all of these things have been incremental. And I think probably <laughs> if you have a big focus on, you know, I want to be X, Y or Z, I don't know whether people actually do get to see those things in the way that they would like. I mean, what were your goals then when you were first starting out? Did you just want to make programmes for the BBC what was the goal there were so few older women around it never occurred to me that I would be working in television this long you know I just thought I would do it for five years or something and then I would go and do something else I mean it's actually even now a shock to me that I'm still in television because there were no older women around at all Mm. so and usually when women had children they left 
and yeah. that sort of thing. So it wasn't really something that you could look ahead and say, oh, there's, there's all those older women like there are now in television because that just didn't exist when I started out. So I, I generally thought, oh, when I got the first job, I thought, oh, five years and then I'll be gone. I'll be doing something else. I didn't really have any long-term plan because that vision really didn't exist. But you're obviously very good at what you do and, and five years turned into over 20. Yes, yeah, a long time. Yeah, we won't, we won't go into that. Seeing as, seen as I'm only 22 and I've only 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> and if you had to kind of look back on all that you've achieved, has, have you got like one single most rewarding moment of your career? Um, there's a couple of things that are, you know, there, there are actually many, many things that are rewarding. One of the rewarding things is that I've got very long friendships going back to when I very first started in mm. television. And actually, because it's such a transient industry and now full of freelancers, that's something that I think that a lot of people wouldn't expect to happen. But I've got very, very long standing and very good friendships from when I, from the very first day I started, which is really amazing. Um, I think that you would, you know, you would sustain friendships over varying careers and people dropping in and out and doing completely different things that that would have happened. Mm. Um, I think also the fact that I've brought a lot of people in and they're still working and they've got careers as well is incredibly rewarding. Mm. I think in show terms, uh, certainly when I was a series producer of The Ozone, which was a very cutting edge music show that I was a series producer of, uh, that was great because I worked with a lot of talent that was just starting out both as presenters and as um, pop stars. And so it was great to be, in, in, you know, right in the cut and thrust of that part of, the, you know, that very exciting time when um, the music industry was evolving a lot more and there was a lot more focus on young people and what they wanted. Mm. So that was great and then more recently obviously you know running Douglas Road with Lenny and the success mm. that we've had there with Soon Gone and Windrush Chronicle which was nominated for lots of awards won some awards which was really great and then also there it was just bringing in um, fantastic talent that had, had lots of experience lots of success across radio and theatre but hadn't written for TV so it was really good to bring them in and the writers room was just so much fun it was just really really interesting so it was great to do that that classical music the forgotten history that we did last year was really really well received I had a very young team on Fierce Women a series that we did for BBC Arts and then my focus there was making sure that the producers got into the edit which is something that doesn't really happen that much because PDs often are just shooting and then all their stuff gets handed over to an edit producer and then it's much, much harder for you to be able to go on to make your first film if you've never been in an edit. So that was one of my discussions with the panel when we talked about that in the first place. I wanted that to happen and it did. So I was really pleased with that. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, Douglas Road growing. That's what I'm, I'm focused on now. And I do have my other things like you said at the beginning, but um, they're all complementary to what I'm interested in, what I'm part of, what is important to me. So they're not completely away from my core interests and my core life professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes I do get asked to do things. And I just thought, well, that isn't, yeah, I, I'm sure I could do it, but it's not part of my core interests or core mm-hmm. passion. So then I don't do those things because they just, they would be too distracting away from the things I am really interested in and what I'm focused on. So everything yeah. that I do do is all part of the same package, if you see what I mean. I do think you're onto something there where you say that you only select work projects that you're interested in or you're passionate about. I definitely think there's weight in that because you're going to show up 
excited, engaged, ready for it, giving you best because you're already invested because you've got that natural interest in it. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And when you talk about success, I like it that you you are more about the people and if it makes you feel happy. Because a lot of, I think in our industry, people define success by how much money you earn, if you've won any awards. So it's really it's really refreshing to hear that they're not even considerations for you. Although you did say, didn't you, the right money, the right people, the right project. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which Anybody more... listening, don't think that I'm not going to be demanding my, my right money. If you approach <laughs> me, I definitely will be. Absolutely. You, <laughs> must, of course, you must. Of course. And it's very nice to win things, but that's not the be all and end all. It is very nice to win things. Because yeah. um, you got in 2020, you were recognised, weren't you, for your work in telly? You were honoured yes, by, by the BFI. BFI. Yeah, that was really, really lovely, actually. That was such a nice thing for them to do. It was such a nice surprise. It was a lovely evening. It was it was it was really wonderful. Yeah, Soul Sisters Woman of the Year. So that was great. The inaugural person. So yeah, that was really really wonderful, and I was really grateful to have them recognise me like that. You know, you've contributed a lot to the industry, and like you said, you've invested in a lot of young people's careers who are still in the industry and are doing really well because of your contribution. So super well done for that. You're also part of the Lenny Henry Film and TV Diversity Action Group. Can you tell us a bit about that and the work that you do with them? So there's a core group of us involved. There's a wider group and there's a core group. And what we have been trying to do is engage the government and important stakeholders in how to reflect the diversity of our nation positively uh, in employment and in portrayal. So that's also across socioeconomic groups and with our disabled colleagues as well. And that could be financial. So that's part of it. So other countries have got diversity tax breaks. And we've spoken to the government. We've been to Downing Street and the TCMS, etc. about that. But it's an ongoing conversation about how we are more reflective to our population and what that can bring. Because if you think about something like Bridgerton, which was on over Christmas, so something like 80 million views. I, mean, I think that would engage a lot of people who wouldn't ordinarily have watched a period drama simply because of the mixed casting yeah and it wasn't as though they were shying away from having that discussion about race because they mm. actually did tackle that head-on in the program yeah. but it certainly didn't put off any of the 80 million people from watching all eight episodes Not and now they been commissioned again so mm. there is also not only the authenticity not, not that I'm saying that period drama is necessarily authentic in per se in that but the fact that they are reflecting that there were black people in Britain at that time, at court, or wherever, you know, it's just part of a normal part of life. Yeah, they had a black um, Queen Charlotte, which was really important. Yes, I mean, there is some dispute about that. But yeah, let's say for the purposes of this conversation that she is, but that's never shown. So that's, and also, interestingly, she wasn't even in the books. So that was Shonda Rhimes putting her, because she was Queen at that time, but she wasn't in the book. So she did put her on screen as a Queen. So when we talk about something like Bridgerton, to finish what I'm saying there, is that it didn't put off all those viewers because black characters were integral to it and race was discussed. In fact, I think it brought more people to it because it was reaching out to all the people who wouldn't normally have watched a show like that. Yeah. So therefore, what you, what you can see then is that did Netflix pick up more subscribers because of it? Yes, probably. Mm. Advertisers, can they sell it, etc. It's got a much wider market. Mm. That's just one small example. 
But I think if that was replicated across a lot more things, especially internationally, there, there might be a sea change. But I mean, it's all the culture shift, isn't it? It's just about what people want to do and what their intentions are and whether they see the commercial and financial benefits as well as the social benefits of doing what we as a group and other pressure groups are saying. Mm. And I think that's why it was so refreshing to see people of colour in positions of stature and it just feel normal. Yes, I mean, I certainly didn't think anything of it at all. No, I I remember tweeting about it. I was so excited. It was a love story between two people, both of one of whom had had a very difficult upbringing. And it was just that normal love story that everybody wants to invest in. Plus, I mean, of course, the Duke of Bonkington was properly hot, so that helped. (laughs) The Duke of Bonkington, I love that, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and so what are the kind of plans for the next, would you say, three to five years with your diversity action group? What kind of things are you working on? Well, Lenny, so Lenny Henry and Marcus Ryder wrote a book called Access All Areas, which I do urge people to read because they talk about all kinds of industries Mm -hmm. Um, and what the diversity is in them and Marcus is about to start working at the Lenny Henry Centre for Media Diversity Mm -hmm. um, as a full-time consultant for them. We're not going to let up on on just making sure that the industry is more equitable and fairer however we do that so it's hard to say exactly now what the three to five year plan is because if everything falls into place I mean obviously the whole point of these things is that eventually everything is where you want it to be and you can just expand yeah. But that would be great if we were saying in three to five years, this was, we actually not needed anymore. Mm. Things have moved on enough, but I don't know whether they will have done because they've been so slow for the previous however long. With certain industries, things seem to take 20, 30 years to move. And in other industries, things shift so quickly. I was chairing a conference the other day with um, somebody who works for Amazon a VP of Amazon and he was saying that all of us using Zoom and all this technology how we've changed our behavior they forecast us to be where we are now five years from now and and look we're already doing what they they thought we'd be doing in five years time just because of the impact of the pandemic so it shows you how different sectors when things happen or there's money behind it and people want things to change they can roll that change out really quickly but then in other sectors if it's not a priority then it takes a really long time for things to change yeah and that's what I mean it's about all about what's going on at the top and what people want to happen mm. so if everybody's focused on want something to happen then it will happen if they don't then it won't yeah let's talk about your current role because you're the managing director of Douglas Road Productions and that's the the indie that Lenny founded back in 2014 this past year obviously has been absolutely bonkers what's the impact been on the business for you because obviously you're, you're leading things from the top well we were lucky enough to put out two things last year we put out Black Classical Music The Forgotten History and Gospel According to Misha so both of those went out the late summer. So we were able to finish those. Luckily, we'd started filming them the year before. Mm-hmm. Obviously, everything had closed down for a bit, but then we picked up, we still managed to do some filming mm-hmm. um, and went into the edit and delivered them. So that was really, really good. Yeah. Were there any kind of creative challenges that you came up against? Because you did, did you have any shoots planned that you had to kind of postpone or...? The shoots towards the end, obviously, they were much more socially distanced than they, physically distanced, actually, than they were, would have probably previously been. Mm-hmm. And then the edits were remote. So that was interesting, using that technology so that we could all watch and do the notes at the same time. That's quite cool, uh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was quite cool, actually. I think one of the really good things, actually, over the last year is how much more access we've all had 
to decision makers, to the commissioners, to the broadcasters, to commissioning meetings, etc. That has been really good mm-hmm. um, because they've been able to get on Zoom and then you know do briefings for a much bigger group of people because there's the lack of travel involved. They're having more meetings, so that part of it has actually been pretty good. The access that you've been able to get to people over the last year is, is very much improved. Obviously, because because we're in lockdown and and everything that happened, you know, Lenny was able to develop his drama. We got that commissioned. Yeah, so um, that's in the in process at the moment. And we did do some filming for another drama. So, you know, television is always hustling and hustling. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what it is. And then whenever you've got something, oh, well, what's the next thing I'm going to get? You're always on that thing of what's what's coming next. So I think it's so down for everybody. It was a very, very hard year last year. I think everybody's picking themselves up back now. So we were we were lucky that we were able to edit those two programs, put them out. We were they were very well received, and so I was happy with that, and that we were able to carry on filming and developing stuff. So that was good. And what have you learned about yourself during this time? That I've been living in the office instead of working from home. Oh yes, I know. I hear that. I hear which that. Is, which is not good at all. Uh, it's interesting in all these uh, surveys about. You know, the companies, especially the banking companies, are so desperate to get people back to the office. Mm. I think that people aren't, aren't productive at home. I think it's completely opposite. I think that more people worked a lot harder, longer hours, yeah, fewer yeah. breaks from home and fewer distractions than they do when they're in the office. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, how we all feel when we go back. But I don't know if there'll ever be any of that completely full time working. I mean, always full time working, but full time in the office mm. going forward. I think that's probably going to take a little while to come back. If it does, if it does. And obviously also for the pandemic, it was much easier for people who had money, space, their home offices, their gardens, and for younger people who might be in a house share or had to go back home to their parents or whatever. So it's all a balancing act. So it can't be just like, we're not going back because it suits us, the bosses, the people in charge, because it might not suit everyone. And we have to be aware of people's circumstances, how they're dealing with you know, their mental health around it. Yeah. what they need socially etc so I must say our company has been very very good on all of that making sure that certain, you know certain things are put in place for people and that there are still social occasions even if they're over zoom mm. so so they have been really really good I must say very impressed with their focus on the employees and well-being yeah it feels like there's gonna have to be a kind of hybrid model isn't there of working where people have that flexibility and that option to be able to come into the office a couple of days a week uh, but also to be able to work from home if they want to they did a survey and lots of people said that they they want the choice of being able to do both but obviously it depends on what your role is yes yeah but the truth of the matter is everybody's roles carried on even if they never left their house Mm. so you can still do that but it's just I mean, I think it is really good, especially in TV, where there's a lot of collaboration needed for teams to get together. Because what I've found is that you go on a Zoom and you just talk about the one thing you're talking about. Yeah. Whereas when you're in the office, all sorts of things are coming up all the time. And also it's much easier with new recruits to show them the ways of, of, of working within a team if they are in a team that they can actually see and speak to. Whereas it's much more difficult if you recruit somebody to work on a show, then they're just doing that one thing. Yeah, and I've been speaking to some freelancers who've just joined teams recently. What they feel they're missing out on is that bonding with other team members because they're just meeting them on Zoom. They're not really getting to know each other like you would in person. So I know that they're very much looking forward to getting out there and shooting as a team again, rather than the Zoom calls where it's still a bit disconnected. Yeah, absolutely. I think we do need that connection and that collaboration. 
yeah. because that's how you come up with ideas and something bounces off somebody else and there's a little spark or did you see such and such did you read such and such you know there's all of those things and then that gives somebody else an idea it might not necessarily be yours but it's part of the team process and looking back on all that you've achieved Angela because you've done so much uh, and also all the women that you've worked with coming up tell me which women inspire you most and why probably going back to what we were talking about earlier so those women who were like Maura Stewart and Floella Benjamin and Una Marston, who of course was way before my time that I found out about you know, years ago, because they were definitely groundbreaking and had to, I'm sure they had to jump through a lot of loops and had a lot of barriers to what they managed to achieve. And also in America, you know, people like Dan Carroll, who was a star of a TV show a very, very long time ago. So that must have been really, really weird for her to be, to be such a big TV star and the only black woman with her own show mm-hmm. uh, like that at that, at that time. Um, and I think more recently, people like Ava DuVernay, who's been really, really amazing. Yeah, she's a fantastic woman. I've met her a few times, actually. And she, Have you? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm one, really one person removed from meeting Ava. <laughs> yes, no, she's absolutely lovely. And she's very, very entertaining and very good company and very nice, which is really great when you meet people and they're actually good people, which she definitely is. So uh, I, I think she's doing amazing, amazing stuff in the States. So yeah, people like her, Shonda. Shonda's a candy. She's not following the candy. She's the candy, <laughs> she says. So it's nice that when you when you know that you're the candy and you can you can be that. And I must ask you because I ask everybody that I speak to, what is your message to the women of the world? So my message to women, I don't know about all the all around the world, but I would just say they're listening. They're listening. Okay, women of the world, remain true to who you are. And try not to be influenced, not too much by noise around you, because there is a lot of noise. There's, and especially now with social media about all sorts of things, appearance, etiquette, all sorts of things. And I think that you could, it's very easy to be distracted by a lot of noise and other people's opinions. Having good energy from good people and staying focused on what you're interested, what your passions are, I think is really important. Ah, I completely agree. You're absolutely right in being true to yourself. It, it's it's so important, actually, because I think many different industries, there's lots of smoke and mirrors. And if you don't know who you are and you don't stay true to yourself, you can get really mixed up in all of all of that, can't you? It's a really important message. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ria Hebden. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for listening. Hopefully you've got more of an insight into what it's like to work at the most senior level in television, along with some invaluable life lessons and words of wisdom. You can find out more information about working in TV and what we do at wonderwomentv.com. And you can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Finally, this podcast was produced by me, Ria Hebden. Stay safe, stay positive, and thanks for listening.